You'll start making your way back to your seats. And as you do, I want to encourage you to open your Bibles to Psalm chapter 119. To Psalm chapter 119. We're continuing on in our series through the Psalms, the summer in the Psalms. And it's going to be, be in the Psalms for a few more weeks through the, the month of August. Excited for some brothers coming up preaching. Pastor Jesse is going to be preaching next week and in the following week. Uh, Shane will get an opportunity to, to be preaching and we're excited about that. But I want to, I want to draw our attention to Psalm chapter 119. I want to invite you to stand out of reverence for God's word. Don't worry, I'm not reading all 176 verses. I was joking earlier, I legitimately thought about just reading the psalm and sitting down and saying, have a good Sunday. It would have been a full 30, 40 minute sermon, but I want to just draw your attention this morning to the first nine verses. I'm going to be reading from the New American Standard this morning and hear the word of the Lord. It says, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. How blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do know in righteousness, they walk in his ways. You have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart. When I learn your righteous judgments, I shall, not, I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me utterly. In verse 9, how can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. This morning, I want us to consider this idea of the God who speaks. God who speaks. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you that you are a God who speaks and that you have communicated to us. And I pray that we would be a people who listen. I pray that you'll give me physical and spiritual strength to preach your word to your people, for we are ready to hear from you. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The God who speaks. You know, communication is essential for any healthy relationship. And, and most people know this. Communication is essential for any healthy relationship. That's why if you Google good communication, you will be met with an overwhelming amount of information. From articles, to books, to YouTube videos, to TED Talks, to conferences, to marriage advice. There, there's countless resources all focused on this idea of communication. Countless books trying to help people cultivate better communication. I I got curious, so I took a, a quick look this week, just some of the books on communication. And there was one that I came across that was four essential keys to effective communication in love, life, work, and anywhere. Or if you need a few more than just four keys, you could go with the 16 undeniable laws of communication, apply them, and make the most of your message. Or maybe you're one of those people that you don't want any keys, you don't like rules, you just, just want the truth. You could roll with everyone communicates. Few connect what the most effective people do differently. 
There seems to be this understanding that for people to thrive in any relationship, at life, at school, in friendship, in marriages, that healthy communication matters. That didn't get you, so I'm going to make it personal. I had to learn this in marriage. To be honest, I'm still learning it in marriage. That if Aliyah and I are going to have a healthy marriage, that our communication matters. I was really going to go in, and then she walked in. Uh, Our communication matters. Be transparent with you early in our relationship. Aliyah had to help me with this truth. I don't remember exactly what we were talking about. We were in the midst of conflict. It was somebody's fault. We won't say whose. It was mine. And we were attempting to communicate about the situation, but our communication was struggling. And the reason it was struggling was because I was only communicating with myself, but I didn't realize it. It was a one-way communication. And so what Aaliyah had to point out, and I needed to hear it, and I've tried to remember it since early on in our marriage, what she had to point out was that I wasn't actually listening to what she was saying. Rather, I was speaking, and then when I finished speaking, I would just start thinking about what I wanted to say next, and I'd start responding to myself in conversation with her. Just responding to what I was thinking in my head. It was a one-way conversation. It was closed communication. What Aaliyah was trying to help me see was that if we're going to have a real relationship, a healthy relationship, I have to let her speak too. Can I tell you this morning that in Psalm 119, what the psalmist is trying to get us to understand is that in our relationship with God, if it's going to be a healthy relationship, we have to let God speak. We have to let him talk too. That there are two sides to the conversation in our relationship with God. And yes, we speak to God through prayer. And I don't want to diminish that. Because of Christ, we have bold access to the Father. And we praise God for that. We can enter his throne room with boldness because Jesus has made a way. We can speak directly to the the Father. And that is a blessing beyond measure. But if our relationship is actually going to be a relationship, it will require two-way communication. And in our relationship with God the Father, we are not the only one who speaks. God speaks too. And what the psalmist is trying to get us to see is that the chief avenue, the main way that God speaks is through the Word of God. But more than that, he's trying to get us to see what a gift it is that God would speak to us at all. So let me, let me set the stage for you a little bit as we get ready to look at Psalm 119. Psalm 119, you might have figured this out, you might know this, it's the longest of the Psalms. It's actually the longest chapter in the Bible. It's longer than some books of the Bible in their entirety, this single chapter. I'm going to be, again, transparent with you. I wasn't planning on preaching Psalm 119, but I wasn't supposed to preach this week. Uh, and, and Pastor McGilbert was supposed to preach, and, and they've just been battling a lot in their house. He's a little under the weather. So I was like, I'll preach for you. And he called me and said, hey, I want you to preach Psalm 119. And I said, no. And he said, no, 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 I really, the Lord laid it on my heart. And I was like, well, the Lord ain't laid nothing. He hadn't laid anything on my heart yet, so I guess I got to preach Psalm 119. I was like, well, how are you going to preach? And he told me how he was going to preach. I said, I'm not going to preach it that way, but I'll preach it. But Psalm 119 is challenging. It, it, it's difficult to preach. I'll get to that in a minute as to why, but the way that this psalm is set up is we we don't know exactly who who the author of this psalm is. It's never set. There are some different theories. I tend to believe it's David writing as a younger man. 
The reason for this, and if, and if you're very familiar with the Psalms, you'll know what I mean. It just, it feels like David's writing. The communication is a way that we've seen David communicate before. So I think it's David, but writing as a younger man. And what he's doing is interesting. There are 22 sections to this Psalm. And in each section, there are eight verses. And what the psalmist is doing, there are 22 sections because there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And so this psalm is an acrostic. And so each section begins with the corresponding letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So let me tell you what I mean in in English. If we were using the English alphabet, it means that the first eight verses correspond to letter A. And so the first word of that verse starts with A. And then the second section would, would correspond to B. And so the first word would start with B in the English language. And so that's what he's doing. And so he's working through all 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet, each section having eight verses. Make sense? But part of what makes this psalm particularly difficult to at least preach from is its genre. This is poetry. This is a song that was to be sung. And so what I'm going to do this morning, I'm just kind of telling you how I'm working this thing, probably for my own sanity, but just so you know where I'm coming from, is is I'm trying to break this psalm up into three sections. But I need you to know that the psalmist doesn't break these nine verses up into these three sections. He doesn't necessarily link them together the way that I'm linking them together because in all actuality, Psalm 119 reads very much like the Proverbs, if you will, where a verse is just its own subject and then the next verse is just its own subject talking about its own thing and it just kind of rolls through all 176 verses like that. So trying to put nine together is a difficult task, but I think I've grouped them into three things that will be helpful for us to understand. But let me tell you why I picked the first nine verses. In these verses, the first nine, the psalmist uses eight different words to express the word of God. Eight different Hebrew words to express the word of God, all meaning something different. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to walk through these nine verses and hopefully, I mean, here's my goal. It's somewhat simplistic. I just want to shed some light on how amazing God's word is. Because we're prone to forget, are we not? Like if we're honest, too many days often go by with our Bible sitting closed on our nightstand without being open. And I just want to, I want to kind of recapture your wonder for just how amazing it is that God would speak to us through his word. So the text begins there in in Psalm 119 verses 1 through 3. Psalmist writes this, I'm going to read it again, how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. You see that word law there underlined? That's the first word. It says, how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. They also do no unrighteous. They walk in his ways. So there are three different words that he uses to describe the word of God in these first three verses. And what he's trying to communicate, they are all focused on the blessing of the word of God. So what you see there on your screen, I'm trying to remember how I put it up there because my notes actually look different. We found it this morning than what, what, what I put on the screen is that first word there is the English word that, you, that, that, that we have in our text. So you've got law, right? You've got testimony and you've got ways. What you see next to it is the Hebrew word for it. So law, right? You see Torah there. 
And then you've got an explanation of what it is. So the law refers to God's instruction, the testimony. It's, it's what God testifies about himself and his wills and his ways would, would mean the moral direction of life that the Lord wants for his people. But again, all of these kind of function under this category of, of the fact that the word of God is a blessing. And the psalmist in these verses is declaring how it is once again that you and I can experience a blessed life, a life of fullness and a life of joy. We started the psalm series with that in Psalm 1. Do you remember the blessed life? And here it comes again. How it is that we experiencing the blessings of God, the fullness of God, the, complete, the completeness of God. And what he says is that your life will be blessed when it's a blameless life. And then he explains what that looks like. A blameless life, therefore a blessed life, is a life that walks in the law, the Torah, the instruction of the Lord. So let me try to make it plain for us. I said this a few weeks ago when I began the series in Psalm 1, and I, I said it was a whole sermon on its own, so here it is. Your life will just be better when you walk in God's instruction and avoid the sin of this world. Like your life will just be better. When you do the things that God tells you to do and when you avoid the things that God tells you to avoid, your life will just be better. It will be blessed. There will be a fullness, a completeness, a joy. Now listen, I'm not saying it's easy. I'm not saying there won't be struggles. I'm just saying that living the way God has called you to live will inevitably produce a better life. And please hear me. This doesn't take deep theological reasoning to understand. It just requires you live a little bit. Because the majority of people in this room, let's be honest, the majority of the people in this room have decided to trust in Jesus. Amen? Decided to trust in Jesus. And what that means is that you've said, I'm going to follow after him. But it wasn't always that way. There was a time when you did not follow Jesus. So you have lived in both realities. You tracking with me? You have lived in obedience and you have lived in disobedience. And I believe you'd be hard pressed to find. We could probably go around this room. You would be hard pressed to find any genuine believer who would say that my life was better without Jesus. And if we wouldn't say that, if we wouldn't say that our life is better without Jesus, then the question that we have to answer is, if my life wasn't better without Jesus before, what makes me think it will be better without him now? Because that's what sin is. Even for the believer, when we sin, we are effectively saying to Jesus with our actions, I don't need what you have to offer in this area of my life. I would be better off without you. And what the psalmist wants us to see is that your life is just better when you walk in the law of the Lord. You could say it like this. Sin will never deliver the happiness it promises. Sin will never deliver the fullness it promises. Sin will never produce the joy that every human heart longs for. But how blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. But please hear me, if we're going to walk in the law or the instruction of the Lord, I know this is basic, but we, we can take it back to elementary school, amen? Then we have to know what the Lord actually instructs. 
And the psalmist is very intentional when he chooses the word law or Torah. See, most likely, he's simply referring to the first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. That's it. That's all he's referring to. And think about that. He says that the law God has given, if we walk in it, we will experience a blessed life. So think about how much more The blessing is extended to us with the full canon of Scripture in our hands. But there's even more blessing that he's trying to pick up on because the psalmist continues with this idea of blessing in verse 2. And he says, and how blessed are those who observe his testimonies, who seek him with all their heart. Here he speaks of the word of God as a testimony, meaning what God has revealed about himself and his will. There is, church, blessing to be found in the testimonies of God. That, I got like one. That should have been like one more amen. Like there's blessing in the testimony of God. So let me, let me break down why this is a blessing. The very fact that there are testimonies of God reveals to us something about God. Here it is. Though our God sits high, he looks low. Our God has made it so that he can be known. Like so much so that he has given his own testimony of who he is and what he's all about. That's what we read in Deuteronomy 4.35. He says, you, have, you were shown these things so that you would know that the Lord is God and there is no other beside him. Listen to me, church. The things about God that make us shout aren't the things we figured out all by ourselves. They are God's testimony to us about who he is and what he's done. Can I tell you what I mean? It's God's testimony that that declares that he is the sovereign creator over everything that exists. It's God's testimony that declares that he will cover the shame of a rebellious people. It's God's testimony that declares that he will take a people who weren't a people and make them his people. It's God's testimony that declares that God can make a way where there is no way. It's God's testimony that declares that he can split the seas and send enemies running. It's God's testimony that declares that he is near to the brokenhearted. It's God's testimony that declares that he is patient with our sin, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's God's testimony that declares he is perfect in all of his ways. It's God's testimony that declares that there is salvation in no one else. It is God's testimony that declares that death could not stop him and the grave could not hold him. What I'm trying to get you to see is that the hope you cling to, the shout in your praise exists because God has said something about himself. He has told us who he is and what he's done. And I hate to burst your bubble, but you don't praise because you were smart enough to figure it out. God said, you so far from me, I'll give you a book and I'll tell you who I am and what I've done. And it is a blessing To read God's testimony about himself. Like, yeah, I want you to tell me about how great God is. We need to tell one another about who he is and what he's done. But our testimonies about God don't compare to God's testimony about himself. The God we seek after is a God who has made himself known. And that alone should blow our mind. Not only does he make himself known... He's made his ways known, right? That's verse three. He says, they also do no unrighteousness. They walk in his ways. 
So the one who observes God's testimony not only learns about God, but learns about the right way to live, a way that reveals our flourishing in this world. Church, it is a blessing that God wants us to have life and have it abundantly, and that life is communicated to us in his word. He wants us to see him and his goodness and grace and live in relationship with him. And all of that demands that we open the book. He wants to be in a relationship with us. You don't tell somebody, even on a personal level, all of these personal things about yourself unless you want some sort of relationship with that person. And God has revealed his character, his nature, his holiness, his righteousness. Yes, because he is worthy, but also because he wants us to live in relationship. But that leads to the next thing that I want you to see, not only the blessing, but I want you to see the covenant relationship. And we see this in the different words he uses in verses 4 through 8. So look again at verses 4 through 8 with me. He says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. Oh, that my ways may be established to keep your statutes. Then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgments. I shall keep your statutes. Do not forsake me. Utterly. So you see those words there, precepts, what God has appointed to be done, his, his statutes, what the divine lawgiver has laid down, his commandments, what God demands of us, his judgments, what the divine judge has ruled to be right and just. I realized it would have helped if I clicked the side so you could see what I was reading. So it should be coming up. But what I want to point out about these words, the reason that these kind of point to the covenant relationship is all of these words point to the covenantal nature of our God. You see, we hear words like this, precepts, commandments, judgments, statutes. We hear words like this surrounding the covenant that God made with Israel. When he declared they would be his people and he would be their God. We see it in passages like Deuteronomy 12, 1. These are the statutes and the judgments which you shall carefully observe in the land which the Lord, the God of your fathers, has given you to possess as long as you live on the earth. Even Nehemiah, when, when he's recounting what took place at, at Mount Sinai, when God gave his people the law and instituted a covenant with them, he uses similar language. Nehemiah 9, verse 13 then you came down on Mount Sinai and you spoke with them from heaven. You gave them just ordinances and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And so watch this. By using this language, by designating the word of God in this way, the psalmist is identifying himself in the covenant of God by identifying himself with the word of God. Do you see that? He's identifying himself in the covenant of God by identifying himself with the word of God, specifically the law of God. So now what I want, I want to, I want to press in here a little bit. So I'm going to do a little bit of teaching here, okay? So this is your, your chance to like listen, take notes. I don't need an amen, okay? You can, you can give it if you want to because the spirit can work through teaching. But let, let me press in here a little bit, Okay. I think oftentimes we, we have a misunderstanding as it relates to the law in the Old Testament and the New Testament. 
In other words, I don't think we always understand the significance of the law and what it actually means and what it does. So in the Old Testament, so track with me, I'm going to teach for a minute, okay? In the Old Testament, the law was not what saved you, okay? So then where was salvation found? Salvation in the Old Testament was found the same place it is in the New Testament, through faith. Just like the New Testament. Faith in what? Faith that Yahweh was God above all else and that he and he alone could restore what has been broken in this world. It's faith, right? Consider Abraham. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. His faith. The law wasn't even instituted yet. His faith was credited to him as righteousness. And so in the Old Testament, salvation was tied to faith. Now here's the truth. Most ancient Near East readers of the law, most Israelites would have understood that. They didn't believe that salvation was found in keeping the law. They understood that it was by faith, that God was who he says he is and that he would do what he said. They were looking forward to the same redemption that we look back on. It's faith. So then the question becomes, well, if it was by faith, then why the law? Why even give the law? Well, because what God understood is that a genuine faith would produce a genuine love for and loyalty to God. And the law revealed an Israelite's loving loyalty to Yahweh. Right? It's the same thing we see in the New Testament with Jesus. 1 John 5.3 For this is what a love for God is. To keep his commandments and his commandments are not a burden. So a love for God, a loyalty to God is revealed through our willingness to be obedient to God. But there was another reason for the law in the Old Testament. And I think we miss this. I'm still teaching. Stay with me. The law was meant to distinguish Israel as a people set apart because God is set apart. Because God is holy. Right? That's Exodus 19, verse 6. And you will be my kingdom of priests, my holy nation. These are the words that you are to say to the Israelites. So now another question. What was the purpose of Israel being set apart in the first place? Why did God do all of this? Had he had just, did he just give up on the rest of the world and say, I'm just going to pick this people, I'm going to save them and forget everybody else? Absolutely not. Israel, as a distinct nation, was in the Old Testament... To be the people through which humanity would return to Eden. You tracking with me? Because that's the goal. The goal is a restored Eden. Getting back to the place where we are in the presence of God. Right? God himself says that in Isaiah 49, right? That they are to return the people to Eden. So, So when God elects Israel, he says that you will be my people. This is in Deuteronomy, but he also says, but the whole earth is mine too. So he hasn't forgotten the whole earth, that Israel is to be a people through which God will work to restore the world back to Eden. Let me make it plain. They were to be a light to the nations. That was their purpose. And the only way they could be a light to the nations is if they were set apart and distinct from the nations. And the law was the means by which they were distinct from the nations. The law was to be evidence of their distinct life. But they failed. Enter Jesus. 
See, in a very interesting text of Scripture, you see this. In Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6, it's a significant passage when it comes to this idea. It's one of the servant passages of Isaiah that point us to Jesus. And this passage highlights Israel's purpose while simultaneously building a bridge to Jesus as the the realization of God's mission. So the setting, I'm almost done teaching, okay? I'm going to get back to preaching. The setting for Isaiah 49 is Israel failing to draw the nations to God because they had failed to live in covenant faithfulness. They failed to obey the law. And as a result, Isaiah speaks of a servant who will restore Israel and redeem the role that Israel was meant to play in God's mission. And this is what we read in Isaiah 49, verse 6. God says, it's not enough for you to be my servant, raising up the tribes of Jacob and restoring the protected ones of Israel. I will also make you a light for the nations to be my salvation to the ends of the earth. And so in the Old Testament... Here it is in a nutshell. The purpose of the law was twofold, to reveal loyalty to God, but I would argue more importantly, to be a light to the nations. But again, Israel failed, but Jesus didn't. He fulfilled the law and is, as John 1 tells us, the true light in the darkness. He is God's complete plan to restore what was broken at the fall. Jesus is the restoration of Eden. So how then does the law relate to us on this side of the cross? Well, it's not that distinct from the Old Testament in one sense. Because the law doesn't save us either. That's Galatians 2.16, yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. It doesn't get much plainer than that. A person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And then what Paul says a few verses later in Galatians 2.21, I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died for nothing. But what, what does the law do for us? Well... Like Israel, our faithfulness reveals our love for God that's made known through our obedience. Again, 1 John 5, 3. For this is what love for God is, to keep his commands, and his commands are not a burden. But here's the beauty of it. The difference between us and Israel is Israel's holiness was judged by their ability to keep the law. And they couldn't do it. Our holiness is judged by the one who kept the law for us. And so we do not keep the law to try to make ourselves holy because in Jesus we are already holy. But we keep the law for two reasons. To show our love and loyalty to the God who has saved us and to reflect his light to the nations who still need to hear. And we know that Jesus summarizes the entire law Because that's the question of like, well, what of the law do we have to keep? What what was ceremonial? What was not? You know, we don't sacrifice. He's our sacrifice. Which parts got changed? Here it is. Jesus summarizes the entire law when he says this in Matthew 22. Love God and love people. And those two commands will flesh themselves out in different ways, in different spheres. They will flesh themselves out 
as we fight for justice in this world. They will flesh themselves out as we care for the, for the immigrant and the sojourner and the foreigner. They will flesh themselves out when we care for the marginalized and oppressed. They will flesh themselves out in our worship and our commitment to the word and our prayer. They'll flesh themselves out in different ways. But at the heart of the law, Jesus says, love God and love people. But it's in the word of God that we understand what it looks like to fully love God and love people. All right, so let me go back to Psalm 119. I hope that was helpful. But it says, by using this language, this covenantal language, the psalmist is positioning himself in the covenant relationship with God that is defined by the very word of God. Now, I know it was a lot, but let me point out a couple significant things about verses 4 through 8. We should probably talk about our text, right? So verse 4, he says, you have ordained your precepts that we should keep them diligently. So, so he's acknowledging that God defines the covenant relationship in his precepts. But then he says this in verses 5 through 7. This is what I want, I want you to see. He says, oh, that my ways would be established to keep your statutes. Like that's a prayer we should pray to, Amen. He says, then I shall not be ashamed when I look upon all your commandments. I shall give thanks to you with uprightness of heart when I learn your righteous judgment. So watch this. The psalmist cries out for a longing to be so rooted in the statutes of God. Don't miss this. That he wouldn't be ashamed of what they actually say. Can we just be honest this morning? Some of us need to pray this prayer. Because some of us are ashamed of what the Bible actually says is right and wrong. And we are caving to the culture because we're ashamed of what our God says. We're caving when it comes to sexuality. We're caving when it comes to to the nations, to immigration. We're caving when it comes to politics. We're caving in all of these things when God says this is clearly right and this is clearly wrong and we're embarrassed and afraid to stand on the precepts of God. Oh, that we would be so rooted in the statutes of God that we would not be ashamed. But the psalmist goes even further and he says in verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous judgments. Don't miss this. The psalmist, he ties his praise directly to the Lord's judgments. Let me put it like this. The depths of your praise will grow with the knowledge of who God is and what he commands. The psalmist picks up on this very idea a few verses later in Psalm 119, verse 27. He says, make me understand the way of your precepts, so I will meditate on your wonders. See, here's the beauty of the word of God. It reveals the wonder of God. And the more we see of the wonder of God, the more we're going to praise him. And the more we praise him, the more we're going to want to go back to the word to see even more of the wonders of God. Again, I want to make it plain for you. What that also means that if you spend no time in the word, you may be worshiping a God you made up rather than the God who is. Like we can come up here and sing about the goodness of God, but if we don't know what the Bible says the goodness of God is, we might be worshiping the goodness of a false God and think that his goodness means something other than what it means. And I know it's true because that's exactly what's happening in the Health, Wealth, and Prosperity Church. They think that the goodness of God is a full bank account, that the goodness of God is health, that the goodness of God is prosperity in your job, and the Bible doesn't promise that. The goodness of God is that when the bottom falls out, 
He is still there. And so many Christians are worshiping a God they've made up because they just won't open the word. Are you getting what I'm trying to, I'm trying to help you see? This matters. And Sunday morning, I'm glad you're here. Praise God. I'm not going to go an hour like Michael Barger. But even if I did go an hour, an hour is not enough time in this work to sustain the praise that is needed for the entirety of your week. Oh, that we would just stand on the statutes of God. That we would delight in his precepts and see his wonder in his word. Because once again, his testimony is the better testimony. Our praise grows out of our wonder. And our wonder increases the more we spend time in the word. It was a good hour, brother. It was a good hour. So the psalmist picks up on the blessing of the word, the covenant relationship that is revealed and established in the word. But here's the last thing that I want you to see, and it's the last word he uses. And then I'm in my seat. I want you to see the power of the word. Look again at verse 9. He says, How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. When he uses that word there, word, he is speaking of what God has spoken. What God has spoken. And I don't know, when I read this, I just get the sense that the author, he's attributing some power to the word of God. Because it's difficult for a young man to keep his way pure. It's hard to live a life above reproach in this world. It is challenging to be in the world and not of the world. But what the psalmist understands is that there is enough power in the word of God to keep you from stumbling. And you know how we know that? Because the word itself tells us that. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's profitable for what? For teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. The prophet Isaiah reminds us in Isaiah 55.11 of God's declaration. So my words that come out of my mouth will not return to me void. But it will accomplish what I please and will prosper in whatever I send it to do. The great sermon writer in Hebrews, in Hebrews 4, 12 and 13, for the word of God is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. It is penetrating as far as the separation of soul and spirit and joints and marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from him, but all things are naked and exposed in the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Scripture itself tells us that there is power in the word of God. But we know it to be true, don't we, church? Y'all knew it was coming because in Genesis, when God looks at nothing and speaks to nothing, life begins. When God speaks to Abraham, a nation is born. When God speaks to Moses, a people is delivered from 430 years of oppression and slavery. When God speaks to waters, they move. When God speaks to walls, they fall flat. When God speaks, his enemies run. 
When God speaks to Daniel, a pagan king bows down before the king of kings. When God speaks, lions shut their mouths. When God speaks, the heavens respond to fulfill his decrees. There is power in the words of God. And as great as all of that is, there is a better example. Because when the world was in darkness, when Israel had failed, when it seemed like Eden was lost forever, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And the author of Hebrews tells us that long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has appointed him the heir of all things and made the universe through him. The sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact expression of his nature, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And he says, and after making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The hope that we have is that the same word that saved us is the same word that will sustain us. And it is the same word that will keep us. But brothers and sisters, if we're going to rely on the power of that word, we have to know the word. So let me end it right here. God is speaking. And the question that we have to answer is, are we listening? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I thank you for your word. I thank you that you are a God who speaks. And God, I pray that we would never, ever be a people who tire of hearing your voice. Because there is power in your word. To you be all praise and majesty and glory and honor forever and ever. Amen.